the better we know a thing, the less conscious we are of it. Part of my problem with the way a lot of clinical psychology is practiced is this perpetual look inward and backward to some fantasy of being like the, the pristine child. It's like, well, at a certain point, your inner child maybe just has to grow up. And part of the means of that is, I think, the development of skillful action. Hey guys, before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting development at Evolve Move Play. So we are bringing back our two-day traveling workshops. So that means one of our workshops might be coming out to a city near you, or potentially you could reach out to us and bring us to a city near you. We did this for years. I started, when I started Evolve Move Play, I taught traveling workshops all over the world from 2013 to 2019. But after the birth of my youngest daughter, I needed to stay home more with my wife and my three kids. And so we stopped those. But now we have a really amazing staff of teachers who've come up with me through the retreats of the last few years. And I myself have a little bit more freedom to travel. So we've got four upcoming dates here in the States and two dates in Europe coming up where you can come and train with us for just two days. That means it's going to be a lot easier entry point as far as cost and logistics for you to come and join us. So check out what's going on with our two-day workshops in the link down below. And we look forward to seeing you in a city near you soon. Hey guys, uh, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today my guests are Dave Wardman from Physical Alchemy and Chandler Stevens from Ecosomatics. So both these guys have been on the channel before. Um, hopefully you guys are familiar with them. And this conversation came out in particular because Dave asked me to read a book called The Reenchantment of the World many years ago. Um, I finished it recently, though um, my reading of it was kind of split up by several months, so I'm not sure how good my comprehension is. Uh, but I was talking to Chandler about it, and he was saying that it's one of his favorite books as well. Uh, and I thought it'd be a fun thing to sort of review the concepts of it and talk about how um, how those concepts are interacting with each of our works and you know what we can kind of learn from them and trying to approach the problems that we're trying to solve sound good guys absolutely yeah so let me start with you dave why did you want me to read this book it's a very interesting book <laughs> uh, it's just also, because it's an interesting book or is there anything in particular that you no want? no it's it's specifically interesting it's unlike a lot of books it's a very good book um very different and its first interesting point is you hardly ever find it in normal bookstores here which i think is quite an oversight given what is on the bookshelves yeah. in australia at least uh particularly pertinent because i think it was written in the year i was born even and it's talking quite clearly about stuff that's arising now also for me personally at a juncture of my craft development i think you would call it sometime around 2009 maybe Maybe slightly later, I read it and it profoundly changed what I wanted to do with physical training that I was kind of collecting and collating and had a vague idea I wanted to do something different. But this book was a kind of, and the next one were very important for different reasons in orientating where I looked. And of course, then it stepped on from lots of places there, but it's a very good kind of introduction to a, a junction that shifted my work away from a lot of the other things I was doing. So, plus there's lots of funny stuff in it. The Reichian analysis of Sir Isaac is worth the price of admission alone. <laughs> the funny stuff. Some <laughs> other very interesting insights in there. Right now, in terms of my work, I'm actually going back and kind of doing a triangular dissection of it, which is 
interesting, but I won't be able to publish that until later this year. Okay. So yeah, it's been helpful at a lot of those stages and thanks to Mr. Berman for doing it, really. It's interesting you said that that it's maybe not well known enough. I um in preparation for this, I read a um an essay in the LA Review of Books about the problem with re-enchantment. Mm-hmm. And it looks like some since 2000 or something, there have been like eight books that have been published with the same title, The Reenchantment of the World. Um, it's it's a it's a hot topic, but that 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 book um, or that review doesn't mention Berman's book at all. And it sort of talks about. Uh, talks about uh, Max Weber, obviously, as sort of the beginning of this this discussion right uh, i can't remember the german for um the unmagicking of the world but that's been translated into english as the disenchantment of the world and that term was something that the debater was talking about um so it was kind of interesting just to see how how ubiquitous the topic is and then that this book which precedes m- these other books that share the same title by many many years uh, wasn't really considered. Um, Chandler, how did you come across uh, Morris Berman's book and kind of what was its impact on you and your work? I think the trail that led me to Berman was Gregory Bateson. Um, took a deep dive into Steps to an Ecology of Mind many years ago. And that influenced my reading of Berman quite a bit. Um, I think that's how I got there. And then where I clicked with it most was uh, as Dave was saying, some of the Reikian work throughout it as well. In terms of how it factors into things at this point, man, I think it just does such a good job encapsulating the the fundamental schizoid problem that we're dealing with culturally, societally. I'm sure we'll get into a lot more of that as we continue, but um, more recently I've been doing research into some of Lang's work that Berman re- mentions in there as well. And I think, given the things that the three of us are up to, I imagine we take a look at it from different sides. But long story short, that's what got me into it. it was originally through Bateson, figuring out where the Bateson Riverhead fed, and uh, Berman was obviously one of them. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it was an interesting book for me to read because I really enjoyed the aspects on the history of science. Right and how science was wrapped up in alchemy and the whole question of the alchemical imagination um, is very fascinating. The and then it starts to get into a lot of concepts that I find very resonant with what John Ravicki is doing around you know how we recover the lost ways of knowing of participation and perspectival knowing um, and even you know even procedural knowing. The the words are the word participation is a big one, obviously, in Berman. Um, but that that the way that it's used is is slightly different. But the central idea that we see over and over again that somehow through the Cartesian legacy, through the personal reformation, there was a a kind of loss of the sense of the human being as continuous and the human consciousness as continuous with the rest of the world, even as continuous with the body in some sense. Um, and that, that that's not actually scientifically <laughs> well-grounded, but that it's still kind of the paradigm from which we're operating. And that if we can't 
get out of that paradigm that, that we have a problem. Uh, that was what I really resonated with. I found some of the the proposed solutions felt very 1970s to me. Um, and and also there's a in exploring these spaces, I often find that there's a there's a retreat, a potential retreat from this from good scientific epistemology. There's a passage in the book where he says we have to treat it as factual that alchemists achieved the, you know, the transmutation of lead into gold. And um, I don't think we have to do that. <laughs> I think that's a very strange claim. <laughs> um, and I think it it gets that attention that that is very important, though, which is that there is something that's that's broken there. And that as we try to step through it, it can get it's not exactly clear what's on the other side. And so there's a lot of opportunity for for confusion. And I think that that's what we saw a lot in the 1960s. So, yeah, that was my my I guess my my take on it so far. I, I was just looking through it this morning and I felt like oh, I really need to reread it to um, have a better understanding of what he's saying and kind of just sit with some of the passages and think, OK, what is he trying to say here? Right. How does this reflect these other areas of research that I'm doing? But let's start here i mean if either of you guys want to pick up something i said that's fine but um how do you conceptualize the idea of disenchantment right if if the world needs to be re-enchanted we we are in a place of disenchantment um what does that mean and if you know one of the things that's coming around a lot in the kind of circles that i'm thinking that i'm communicating in is the sense that like whether we will it or no, the disenchantment is sort of dissipating. <laughs> like, you know, the the tides of modernity are ebbing, um, is something like Paul Vanderklei would say. And the, the religious is popping up in all sorts of places that we, when we thought we had sort of gotten rid of it. So what is your understanding of the disenchantment that we are trying to re-enchant from? Mm, I have a very different take on that word than most people. Mm -hmm. So for me, the book itself <clears throat> captures the kind of movement from the medieval period to the early modern and on quite well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people I've talked to tend to emphasize that as being the disenchantment is in that particular junction. Whereas for me, it was simply moving from uh, one form of disenchantment one epoch into the next, and there was one preceding that. So for me, disenchantment has been there for many thousands of years. It's talked about in ancient Greece in different ways, but not in the normal channels. It's talked about in the plays, like <clears throat> the frogs, for instance. And you can watch these currents, of which there are three strains, weaving throughout history, but they appear differently in each epoch. So... <clears throat> For instance, when Berman talks about the Chinese creating gunpowder, but they made fireworks out of it, but no ammunition, that was, a, besides being a different culture, of course, it was also a different epoch of Earth, and so different things were possible. Same with the navigation of globe and all these perceptual instruments shifting that Berman captures actually extremely well. I don't localise them around the scientific era. I localise them through the whole of history. And so for me in essence, to look at history is to look at disenchantment and re-enchantment weaving each other, but in different strands. Mm. 
How about for you, Chandler? I trying to think through how to say this. I, I don't want to reduce it to this, but I think at least the way I conceptualize disenchantment, it's quite closely related to the sort of pervasive neuroticizing influence of society. And I think it's very closely linked to a blunting in our affective experience. So I would tend to look at it as a, a fundamental, call it like an ontological or an epistemological split within the self and within the way that the self relates to the surroundings. And I think that the neurotic situation is very tightly linked to affective experience and that those, they don't offer us a, a total means back into something like re-enchantment, but man, I think they're a key piece of the puzzle. Sorry, you the the embodiment piece you say is how we get back into enchantment. I think it's it's fundamental to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, Dave, when you're talking about this has this isn't sort of just, you know, the post-Cartesian problem. That 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 reminds me of, I think Verveke's model offers a little bit longer history of this disenchantment, right? Because he he really starts i mean he starts with the the upper paleolithic revolution you know and the development of shamanism as psychotechnology but he tracks really the meaning crisis to the beginning of the meaning crisis as at the axial revolution and the move from a continuous cosmos where where man and the supernatural are viewed as sort of uh continuous with each other right we are not separated from the, the animistic realm to a world in which uh, we have this uh, two worlds mythology, right? So, in some ways, you might think of the parable of the cave as a as a story of like related to the disenchantment reenchantment idea. Right? There's a there's an illusion that that we are living within, and this is an attempt to think about how we can move past that illusion. Right? It's uh, what what Plato is talking about is in some ways not so different maybe than what Buddha is talking about in the sense of awakening. There is, there's another layer of reality to which we have access, but which our cultural habits have somehow hardened us away from accessing. And within Verveke's model, the, the two worlds mythology, it helps us and during the Axial Revolution deal with um, the strains that had come out of the growth of societies that were very different from, than things that had preceded them. Um, but it, in some strange way, it sort of separates the self, right? It begins the mind-body separation, right? The spirit is separate from the body. Um, and there is this higher realm, the realm of the forms, the realm of spirit, the realm of heaven. Um, so do you, Dave, do you see disenchantment and reenchantment as being fundamentally problems that have always existed with human beings? Or is it something that, that does kind of arise at, at some epoch of human history, but far preceding the industrial revolution or sorry, the scientific revolution? Mm, I can't really comment on the late Paleolithic or anything like that. <laughs> and so wasn't there axial age <laughs> don't think i was there 
Okay. Um, so I do, I've been watching Viveki's stuff and I disagree with a lot of what he says as well as Berman. So I'm doing an analysis on both of them together. They nice. both have interesting things along the way. Um, I think one of the things that happens, I mean, the mind-body split can be traced to lots of different places and it has kind of a different aspect, but this whole kind of idea of there being one realm, whereas if you look at in a lot of the traditions that work with this type of stuff, there's lots of different veils. It's not just a type of thing. There's the ordinary realm, which I call the realm of the square, which I would classify as disenchantment. But getting out of that doesn't mean that one has attained liberation. There's all these other gradations along the way moving forward. So it's a spectrum more than just a one-time thing. We like the one-time yes, no, black, white type of things rather than the spectrum. And so it's difficult to talk about because anyone who has a perceptual shift goes, oh, it's this one. Well, not anyone, but there's a, there's a strong kind of correlation that when someone has a major breakthrough, they assume it's the same as some other major breakthrough. And there's a, they don't understand that there could be any number of these and they can happen bodily. Like I've had, I had heaps of them in the early phase, just learning that, oh my God, like just sensory motor amnesia level. Like I can't feel half my body. Maybe not even, that's a generous, very generous type of figure there. Like 90% of it, isn't that weird? Like why can't I feel my own body? But that's, pretty base level and there's much more uh shocking kind of perceptual shifts ahead so there's a kind of mm, a lot of what i'm trying to do is you can't like we there's no way to argue about something if two people can't see the same thing mm. and that's what perceptual realm break is about i can't we can't have a socratic dialogue about this or a discussion, or even an argument, if you can't see what I'm talking about. So a lot of what I've been doing is a triangular analysis on, like we talked about last time, showing what it isn't, showing what patterns happen when people don't make it, what happens when people mutate on their way out of this. So even within the realm of the square, which I correlate with being the disenchantment, which is not, not it's like a blip along the whole spectrum of what is possible there are a number of stages in that that have their own perceptual realm breaks that have their own mutations possible and recoagulations possible and those are actually mappable so that's what i'm doing raviki's been talking about the idea that the socratic dialogues are um are not they're not primarily propositional right they're actually more similar to like the parables of Christ, which are also should be seen as really very much like Zen koans, right? All of these things are designed not so much to just give you a set of propositions to operate off of, but to try to provoke you to be able to have that lens shift. Um, so that seems like what what your your you're pointing to as well, Dave, is a sense of how do we, you, yeah, like you said, you, you can't, you can't necessarily have a good dialogue or discussion when you have a fundamental difference of what you're seeing, right? So um, I was just reading the section where he talks about uh, the perception of color, right? So we have the, the Newtonian uh, sort of description of how the wavelengths correlate to color in a very specific laboratory environment. But when you step outside of that laboratory environment, you can 
you can elicit the perception of different colors by very different wavelengths in the individual observer. So there isn't a one-to-one -one correlation between the wavelength and the perception. Now, I'm sure you guys have all seen the, the dress, right? That's blue. Yeah. Gold, just thinking right? of <laughs> now, you, there's no way to have a, a discussion about that just looking at it, right? Like you perceive it one way and I perceive it another. And there's just, you know, tell someone gives you another picture of the dress and you can say, okay, and this picture of the dress is actually blue and, and every other picture of the dress is actually blue. It's just within this lighting that that we couldn't see it that way. Um, but until you have that information, you're just you're just stuck seeing different facts, right? So there is a there's a there's a kind of fundamental incongruence that can't be solved for simple propositional uh, dialogue. And then the only way to solve it in some sense is to to be able to trigger the shift in perspective that allows the shared perspective. Now, does that all make sense to you, Dave? Is that kind of hitting along the lines that you're trying to map? Uh, it does. But then for me, I do, you can do a meta map on those. So when people mention those kind of nine dot problem, yeah. blue dress, other perceptual experiments, and then if you see that they mention like Wittgenstein or Merleau-Ponty or these things, you start to get a cluster of how that person thinks. So you know that they couldn't be actually seeing some of the things I'm talking about because you would stop talking about those things as examples of perceptual shifts of this order. They are perceptual shifts for sure, mm -hmm. just as is getting back and filling your hip flexors or jumping from a tree and dealing with adrenaline is, but they're of an order which is in the middle bracket of removal of the square for me. So you can see by people's bringing up of certain examples or authors, the words they use, lots of other signs, and correlating them, trying them together, that they, yes, they can see that that's a thing. And no, the things you talk about in terms of we can't discuss the fact and value type of thing, but I can see a cluster that has, it has a meaning that people bring up those ones as examples. I never bring those ones up. I know what they are. I used to be fascinated by them, but they don't fascinate me anymore, but they are a property of the real world as well. Mm -hmm. So I can show evidence of absence by the evidence that the person brings up. Sure. Well, that makes sense. Um, Chandler, how does, like, what's, what's, uh, what's being generated in your head as this dialogue is happening? Oh, empty space. <laughs> I found myself, uh, Drifting some, but um, yeah, maybe that's part of it too. What comes up for me in, in relation to what you were mentioning before, though, is that, you know, as practitioners, as facilitators, whatever the case may be, we do actually have the means to create this kind of, we can create conditions for learning where a person might actually then become aware of, I think, Dave, what maybe you're suggesting, some of these gaps in their perception, gaps in their action. The, there's, I think, a necessity for us to be pretty clear as practitioners with, I find myself wondering, like, what constitutes liberation? Like, since you said that earlier, Dave, I was just like, yeah, man, he's, you're right. You can break out of one of these little traps of thinking, perception, but then toward what are we aiming? 
is there a kind of positive ideal or do we just continue to buffer against these negative selections? Like, oh, not that, that's not quite it. Not that, that's not quite it. I find myself wondering, like, well, what do we think constitutes this liberatory praxis? It's funny because this is this is what I grilled Dave on in our last conversation was talk a lot about letting go of the things. And if it's done correctly, it has a good result. But the whole concept of correct implies a clear endpoint, right? So you can't just simply remove, you can't remove constraints and open degrees of freedom um, and have a, 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 a defined endpoint without having a good that's defined in some sense, a priori. Mm. And, and this is the problem. And this is, so I think this is, let's, let's ground that. I think that may be difficult for somebody who's just tuning into this conversation, but I think this is like really what happened in the sixties, right? And this is why I react to Berman or some of these other thinkers, Reich, because because we we had the sense that the the culture was overly constrained, that the paradigms that were available to us were insufficient for solving the types of problems that we faced, and there was this sense that the that the correct response was simply the opening up of the degrees of freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And as a child of the counterculture, what I experienced and saw was that a lot of really negative behavior sort of rides in on that opening up of constraints. What I see in a lot of these thinkers is particularly an interest in opening constraints around sexuality. And uh, what I saw in the counterculture was a lot of abuse of sexuality, a lot of, uh, of hypocrisy, a lot of um, just leaky sexuality, uncareful sexuality, abuse of children. Um, and so I'm always like, why are these guys so freaking horny and disgusting? <laughs> Anytime somebody is like citing Marcuse positively, I'm like, oh. So um, that's where, you know, I think that like I get really hung up on. You have to have a better a priori concept of the good before you just start tearing down the structures. Mm. So why are these guys so horny, Dave? And <laughs> is there a better way to do it? Well, the society is definitely repressing of the creative life energies, including sexual, but it's so repressed and the kind of coding that we have, it always does a massive pendulum. We don't do a gradual type of shift thing. There's a very bottled up thing like Jung's essay on Wotan about what happened in Germany is explicit of that as well. You suppress enough, like it turns into hypercolored fucking clusterfuck or it turns into genocide. It turns one way or the other, but then the society itself is fucked too. So what do we do is a very interesting question, but I think you can actually slowly dissolve and digest these things without going completely polarized in any one direction. Again, the pendulum is kind of binary anyway. You swing from one end to the other. Don't go completely out of it. You often hear this idea of the pendulum, right? Like, oh, we just we have to swing the other way. It's too far this way, so we have to swing the other way. But the problem with that is that um, 
you can it's just imagine that there's uh that there's sort of a pathological expression of either side of whatever binary you want to do and if you push the pendulum such that you spend more time in the pathology right just like you swing wider over here you're going to swing wider on the other side and if you know healthy is somewhere here then pushing the pendulum on either side is going to mean we're going to spend less time in that kind of middle pathway like um let's think about like the flow channel with miha chicks and mahali right so you know you can be in apathy or anxiety right on two extremes so the flow channel like you you scale up ability and have an enjoyable experience when you relatively tightly stay in the middle of that pendulum you're going to have some spikes of anxiety you're going to be under challenged and go into apathy but you don't want to spend you don't want the, the thing to get wider and wider in the sense that i have in our cultures in a lot of ways it's seeming to actually we're not tuning in better to a, a positive central groove we're getting more deranged in the extremes <laughs> and so i think as we're processing this like the question has to be how do we uh, I guess recoagulate in your sort of terminology, Dave, more effectively as we go through those stages. So that we're not simply breaking the thing, but we are always reintegrating. Does that make yeah, sense? I would agree. Like if things are going like this. But for me, it's like if you look at like easy examples like politics left and right, for me, centrists are the worst of the bunch in a lot of ways. It's can't be either of them. The fact of the matter is there for me, I don't think almost I could probably count on my hand alone the people who've actually picked their politics, in my opinion, by how I look at the disenchantment. So I have I don't I would not classify as any of those. I don't even I don't seek to classify myself. My politics is re-enchantment. And it's a it's a realm break. So it's not left, right, or center. It's like when you look at all the stuff happening in metamodernism and in embodiment, people are trying to centricize things, and it's one of the best possible places to see disenchantment in its mutated form. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Like, no, uh, I cannot. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave this it because it needs all the deciphering tools to drop into the pond. Okay, cool. Um, there's something significant though in the divestment from categorization. I, I find that at least the way I would conceptualize some of it, part of the problem of disenchantment, and I don't know how it fits into the, the realms idea necessarily, but there's this fetishizing of categories, like the need to define myself as this or that liberal vegan, crossfitter, whatever the hell the case may be. Um, and it brings to mind, I'll just circle back to some of the Bates and stuff. He described these logical categories of learning and communication. And they're not perfect models, but I think that they get the conversation going some. One of them, he talks about learning too, which is essentially like the character we develop, the kind of persona we portray, um, the kind of adjectival description you might give of a person. And that's bodied forth in a way as well. It's in their motor habit, we might say. Yeah, let's 
back up just for a second. So you said yeah. learning two, which sounds like learning T-O, but ah. learning one, learning two, the number, and learning three. Mm -hmm. So maybe just really briefly kind of run yeah. through that. Okay, so really briefly, you'd have zero learning, which is a failure to change between time one and time two. It stays the same. Okay. Learning one would be there is a change between time one and time two, a change of behavior, let's say. Uh, so you get some of the basic ideas around conditioning would apply there. Mm -hmm. um, learning two, he unhelpfully describes as a change of change. Mm -hmm. Most people then just their heads start to swim. I like the way he frames that in terms of this is learning about context. You're learning about the sort of person you are, the sort of world that you inhabit. That would be learning two, where we get to the character stuff. Learning three then, very unhelpfully, is the change of change of change. But it's like, all right, you learn how to ramp up your acclimation to contexts. You maybe learn how to divest from having your sense of security contingent upon particular character. And what I find really interesting about his description of learning three is that he says, this is, you know, it's not without risk. People can psychoticize quite easily. They can, however, stabilize themselves through some of the concrete details. Like if you're hungry, you eat. If you're tired, you sleep. Maybe if you're horny, you fuck. Who knows? But you don't have this kind of hemming and hawing socialization of your bodily experience. And then the really interesting thing, in my opinion, about it is he also links this learning three to something like what William Blake describes in The Auguries of Innocence, where you have this fascination, this wonder at just any goddamn thing you encounter. You can immerse yourself in the relationship with that phenomenon. Um, I bring that up because I think it is important that you mentioned before we can't just strip away all of this. And i it's close to home for me because I had a period where I psychoticized for a little while in an attempt to peel away shit without really having any kind of stabilizing ideal with it. Um, I take refuge then in some ways in the the ability to concretely situate oneself moment to moment in embodied experience again. And that I think is, it's something Bateson hit on a bit. It's something that Berman extends. Neither one of them, I think, really establishes a good practice for that, which is, well, maybe that's where we come in. Yeah. Well, it's it, that that just reminds me of the frustration that I have in that kind of the whole sphere of sense making, I guess, or whatever you want to call this sphere, the the wisdom sphere. Um, which is just the sense that there's so much capacity, there's so much bandwidth for the exchange of propositions that it's very, um, it's just very easy for that to become prioritized and to miss that it's it's really fundamentally um, uh, crippled as a as a as a means, right? It's like we we some we somehow need to get back the gymnasia, right? We got to wrestle and dance and fight and race and, you know, maybe do acid. <laughs> and like, I'm not a guy who does acid, but like the Elysian Mysteries, that was basically uh, a psychedelic. And all of that stuff was sort of um, 
that was all grounds that have kind of been forgotten for the cultivation of philosophy, not as a academic discipline, but as a pursuit of self-transformation in the hope of attaining wisdom. And so it's, it, it still feels like that, that it's always somewhat of an afterthought in the conversation. It's like, yeah, 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 the body, but then, <laughs> but then no, I, uh, I, I told you, I told Chandler about this, but I think, I don't know, maybe this is an interesting thing, but I, uh, I had this dream where I was um, hanging out with Jordan Peterson and his wife, and we were um, watching a documentary about Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. And so then afterwards we were hanging out in my kitchen and I was, um, I was talking to him about his work and he was really bored. He was very disconnected and you could feel that there was this like desire to connect, but it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm just about done. I gotta, I'm gonna have to leave soon. And then I asked him about, uh, about, um, if he'd been aware of the work that I'd done with, uh, with John, and then he became very interested and we sat down and had this really intense chat. And I had just finished the book, Berman's book the night before I had this dream. And so then I started talking to him about concepts from the book in particular, we we're talking about the Reichian idea that the, the, the subconscious is the body, right? And that in the recognition of the self, we have to continually root back to what is the full thing that we're we're so often operating from this very um, isolated conception of the self. But like looking into Reich, he's a very he's a very uncomfortable figure for me to read about, right? Because there's there's something really profound there, but there's also like you know, a lot that reminds me of the aspects of the counterculture that I think have been profoundly unhealthy for us as a culture. Mm -hmm. So I just, just kind of, that was on my mind, but you, you brought up that, that idea repeatedly that there's something critical about rooting back to felt experience. And, you know, and we could bring up like, uh, David Abram and the spell of the sensuous, like that we've been in some sense divorcing ourselves from the primacy of the sensed world. Right? This is also Berman's point around, I think it's uh, Land's work on color, right? And Goethe's critique of uh, Newton, right? There's, there's a and this is again, you know, Dave, you said you really enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan Peugeot. That was this big part of Peugeot's idea too. It's like if we invest ourselves in a paradigm that is necessarily contingent upon our sensed experience of the world, but that doesn't actually try to respect and understand that felt experience, it's going to create. Um, incoherence right it's going to create it's going to create a broken um solution right so how do we re-enchant the body and its relationship to the world one of the things that comes to mind there related to the i think berman says it i don't know that reich directly says it but I think Berman attempting to talk about Reich basically says the, the body is the unconscious. Mm -hmm. I always get a little skeptical whenever I hear the preceding the word unconscious. Yeah. 
the, I think it's so easily reified, but I do think it sets the stage for a, a psychology based and skillful action. And part of my problem with the way a lot of cl- a lot of clinical psychology is practiced is this perpetual look inward and backward to some fantasy of being like, you know, the, the pristine child. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. at a certain point, your inner child maybe just has to grow up. And part of the means of that is, I think, the development of skillful action, knowing that the better we know a thing, the less conscious we are of it. And that's where, I mean, I think, Rafe, the work you do just really excels with that. It's like you, there's a physical pedagogy in place to become more and more skillful in biologically relevant domains. And I think as a, a bedrock for a psychological practice, maybe not a psychology, but a psychological practice, it's so solid. It's something that we're kind of getting a sense of in psychology in general, you know, you have like the body keeps the score and these things, but I don't know that they go far enough in developing skill. Yeah. Yeah. That's my sense is that, um, you know, our, our philosophers are, are not warriors and our warriors are not philosophers. Right. But that there's just a, there's a, there's a perspectival um, knowledge that is only gained through deep pursuit of physical skill. Um, and that it's it's desperately needed in trying to understand this question, right? Uh, I'm trying to understand uh, the meta crisis, I suppose. People are, they just, people haven't, have no relevant physical experience of something that could donate to understanding what they're trying to understand. And they can, fantabulize just the most absurd worldviews because it's never been empirically tested <laughs> by them in a physical way. Um, I I don't know if this is too specific an example, but it comes up quite often in um, psychotherapy patients at this point. People have all sorts of trippy ideas about anger, for instance, mm-hmm. anger being, you know, the most widely repressed affect. But if I suggest for a person that there's some value in anger, immediately not having the concrete experience of anger, they imagine the person just like flying off the handle, acting out, smashing shit. It's like, that's one possible option for what you could do if you were angered. But there's a whole range of possible experiences too that you wouldn't even be able to conceptualize until you'd actually develop the means within yourself to regulate that sort of anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, what that brings up for me is like the rough and tumble play that we do, right? And how uh, people have incredible anxiety about touch, right? About how easily damaged they could be, about you know the potential for sexual energies to enter the the equation, and. Um, they just need good games and good sort of and a good play culture to enter into. And there's so much awareness of interpersonal dynamics that's just emergent in the individual through touch, including like you're going to experience fear, you're going to experience anger, you're going to experience frustration in doing combat- competitive things with things uh, with people. If you wrestle, like you're going to get 
smacked in the nose or the eye or something that's going to hurt for a second. And then you're going to, you know, potentially you'll feel anxiety and fear and want to retreat from the situation. You might have to fight through that, or potentially you're going to want to ramp your energy up. And now you want to make sure that they get a little bit of what you got. And learning to regulate that is just extraordinarily valuable. <laughs> and like, I always felt like, especially in my twenties, um, I had a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of energy to want to fight, you know, I, I, I loved to intellectually debate people and just try to smash them with ideas. And I, I was always thinking about getting in fights and I was working as a bouncer and getting in fights. And <laughs> when I wasn't getting in fights, I was very upset about it and <laughs> fantasizing about potential fights I could get in. <laughs> um, but when I went to spar and I had a good spar, I, go, you know, do something and someone would be irritating and it would just feel like the volume was turned down on the irritatingness. It was like, ah, my aggression was uh, well-regulated. It was harmonized within me uh, through the process of that wrestling. Dave, I see you smiling. Are there any thoughts percolating that you want to share with us? Any gnomic prognostications? Well, I'm all for gymnasium and symposium. So yeah. there's that. <clears throat> yeah, I agree with a lot of the the need to embody, but then again, that's a tricky thing. Uh, there's lots of different types. For me, there's lots of different realms of types too. So if you look at learning three and how Bateson describes it, that could describe for me the entry into the last stage of exit of disenchantment, what I call the red work. Or it could describe a realm break from that into the triangular realm of reenchantment in my terminology, or a liberation event. And they are completely different things. And they would all classify in that definition of learning three. So it's not a particularly good definition. It just describes someone who's having a slightly abnormal thing, but they can be good, bad, or ugly, or they can be in different bits of the body or other aspects of the consciousness. And everyone thinks again that it's here or there or everywhere, but there's no kind of plot to that, so to speak. There's also kind of this kind of mm, theme that embodiment is good. As I've met lots of very negative examples of people being quite embodied. They have very good skills, but they're using them in a very strange way. It's this kind of somato-sophistry. Just because you can make the skills and give it doesn't mean it's going to go and do something good. It's not a neutral thing like that again that comes back to the, the definition of the good but that's that's also how i feel about the the mindfulness aspect right um mm -hmm. i don't think you necessarily disagree with this but like you're you're pointing out that you know you can't in some sense speak um very coherently about an awakening experience if you haven't had an awakening experience Right, or if you haven't had this sort of movement out of this specific uh, experience of disenchantment, which is all well and good. Like I don't claim to uh, to know thing. You know, I don't. If I haven't experienced it, I don't know it. But I can also see that there's often these very exaggerated claims about what these things offer, and then when I look at them, they don't seem to offer the things that I really that really matter to me. Right. So the big problem that I've had with spirituality is spiritual teachers don't seem to be very ethical people. And I care a lot more about people's ethics than I care about their 
awakening experiences. And so, so it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, I've had some, I would say minor, um, oneness experiences. I, uh, you know, I've had moments where I'm like practicing really intensely in the trees and there's this kind of blurring of the sense of self with the tree. It's sort of as if it's co-participating in what's happening. And I kind of get this sense of, you know, um, Viveki led us through a, a meditation at Return of the Source last year where I was listening to the wind and the water and I lost the perception that the wind and the water were external to me, right? I couldn't, there was a, a sort of a synesthesia of my breath and the wind as all sort of one continuous thing. It was a really cool experience. I liked it. Um, but um, but I'm, you know, I've never walked around in a state like that for an extended period of time. But I have known people who've claimed that, who are, you know, are total narcissists. And uh, um, that's something I can say that I have not been. Um, you know, I've, I've noticed those tendencies within myself and I've worked on them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I'm, you know, that's where like the good that you're aimed at becomes really, really important to me and say, okay, we're mapping these things. You're saying learning three. So in, in that kind of system, like Verbeke talks about this idea that there is sort of, um, like you can have knowledge, you can have information. I know X, Y, and Z. And then you can have rationality, which is sort of the system by which you recognize what is relevant. Right. And then you have wisdom, which is, which is this sort of the, um, what's the term I use? I can't remember it, unfortunately, but it's the next level up. It's the meta cognition about your rationalities, the capacity to, to recognize how to step out of specific approaches to rationality. Right? or specific paradigms. It's how do you do that so that you're not trapped within the paradigms and perspectives that you use. I think that is, I hope that's a fair way of describing how he looks at wisdom, which to me does kind of map to these, these levels of learning that you're talking about. Right? So you can just gain a skill or gain information, like something like learning one. You can then begin to systematize and cultivate something with you know that is coherent right you can recognize what's relevant within within that once you're in the the mode of being of of mathematics right you can recognize okay this is the type of transformations that i need to do um and then you can say oh the mode of being of mathematics is no longer the relevant mode so classic example i would give is uh you know you're in a, a relationship there's a conflict and you can look at it as like a structural mechanical problem, or you can look at it as a emotional dynamic problem and knowing when to shift levels is an important aspect of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that I'm, that I'm sort of looking at the, the learning three. And when, when you're talking about it, Dave, this, this idea of, okay, you can go meta and escape this aspect of a worldview, or you can go meta and, do something else that's all that all makes sense to me because it's like yeah i can have a physical practice 
you know, and it's, it's achieving this or it's aimed at this. And this other physical practice is achieving something very different. They're all physical practices. They're all examples of this, this one genus, right? There may be multiple species within that genus that we need to better articulate and, and, uh, and recognize, but recognizing that they're within the same genus, if they are, is still useful information. So it seems to me, David, tell me if I'm mistaking you, that what you're interested in is a better map of what those transformations are and how they, how the process by which you get there can either result in a, um, and the developmental pathway that continues to open up, right? What Brubaker would call a reciprocal opening versus ones that actually create breakdowns, right? You reciprocally open to a point, it collapses, and then you end up somewhere that's maybe not even as good as if you hadn't done that work. It's like it's opening up, you're getting transformation, it's great. And then it's you did it wrong, it coagulates, and now you've got poison instead of uh instead of um, the sorcerer's stone is that a is that a useful way of thinking about what you're trying to to do mm, i am looking for a map i have found a map it's also different than what you're describing mm-hmm. though it is inclusive of that it just turns that on its side a bit and adds in some other things so let's <laughs> Yeah, I would. I would ask you to expand, but I think you would mm-hmm. tell me that you're not going. <laughs> how would How would I expand on that? It's a thing. Trying to stick a, a triangular map through a square hole doesn't work so well. Mm-hmm. And so, the re for me, the reenchantment is a paradigm, but it's not a paradigm in the same way that everything else that's come before it is a paradigm. It's kind of you just use that word as a placeholder, but included in looking backwards into the square is a look at all paradigms before it and how people don't escape those paradigms, how they shift those paradigms, how they can't get out of those paradigms. When they explain history, which bits they omit, which bits they have specific type of resistance to, which bits they have disenchantment triggers to, not triggers related to any trauma in their timeline, ones related to the mind shape of the disenchantment itself, which are very different and manifest differently in the body and are observable after the fact. So subliminal whilst you're in it, but visible after. Yeah, I think it's useful to leave some mystery there. Uh, I think so. I, I wanted to, to, to definitely dig specifically into Berman. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it'd be easy to kind of uh, go down the road of oh, what are the mind shapes and what is this that you're referring to? And I think people can can look back at our first conversation or uh or or dig into your work in other ways. But let's talk. I wanted to talk about um I was curious, one of the 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 sections that really stood out for me was a section around schizophrenia and the Batesonian holism approach to it versus the traditional traditional approach. And I I thought it was a very, it was very intriguing, right? It offers a compelling hypothesis, but it seems like it's also simply something that could actually be answered through scientific epistemology, right? Like you, you just have to do research to see if, if the predictions of Batesonian holism 
actually work when applied to try to achieve the result of um, hmm. of a return to, I guess, good dynamics and harmony. Right. So that was written in 1981, um, I believe. And I haven't heard about Batesonian holism as an approach to schizophrenia treatment. It doesn't seem like we've made any progress, really, on schizophrenia treatment in that time period. And I'm just curious. I mean, uh, Chandler, this is kind of close to your your field. Um, like, okay, this is if if Batesonian holism is is a sort of like paradigm that that is the metaphysics of the future. Here's a here's a test case. Does it work? Mm. <laughs> uh, I'll answer and try to suspend my love of Bateson because that's a definite bias of mine. Is that I'm a, I'm a Bateson fanboy, but not a, a perfect epistemology by by any stretch. It is striking to me that so few therapists recognize the name Bateson. Mm-hmm. And that when they have an association to it, it's only in relation to the double bind. Mm-hmm. So Bateson and his colleagues basically put together this ideological model of the double bind as essentially causative of schizophrenia. I don't know that I entirely buy that. Um, I'm really interested in the critique put forth by Deleuze and Guattari of Bateson in particular saying that double binds are way more common than we might think mm-hmm. and that they are more neuroticizing than schizophrenizing. Can you but, just briefly review what a double bind is so people are, can follow the conversation? Yeah, yeah. So a double bind is a situation that you cannot escape from and it has a confusion of messages. There's a, a message and a kind of meta message that says something like, I'm beating the shit out of you because I love you so much. Can't you see how much I love you? The harder I hit, it's the more I love you. So there's this incongruence in a way between what's said and what is sort of communicated about what is said. Mm-hmm. And Bateson and his, his colleagues are basically putting forth the idea that that's psychologically untenable. Um, other examples might be if I say to you right now, Rafe, be spontaneous you lose no matter what. I I can find some fault in that. Um, That would be kind of what a double bind is high level view, I'd say. Um, Regarding testing the Batesonian thing, I think part of the challenge is that for the individual who's organized psychotically, where we might say, you know, they have a DSM diagnosis of schizophrenia, society doesn't work for them. And so we could have a a kind of test and a theory based on Bateson's epistemology. But as soon as that person leaves the clinic, they're going to encounter all sorts of epistemological problems just based on the way that the world itself is structured. Mm -hmm. They're going to continue to butt into things. And I would imagine based on the, well, based on how things go for a person once they leave an inpatient facility there, it's not going to be a long time before they re-schizophrenize, we might say, or they just they display more and more of these characteristics. 
Um, we've really done wrong by people that are psychotically organized, I think. Um, and I don't know that that's solely an issue of the treatments available. I do think there is something about the, I don't know, call it the underlying premises of culture that don't go well for those individuals. So what do you think of the hypothesis that um, schizophrenia is in some sense a modern ailment, that that the tendency towards schizophrenia or that the, that the underlying attribute which ends up as schizophrenia within our culture has a niche within a traditional culture that allows it to be harmonized with the society that it, and that niche no longer exists, which is why it is pathological within our situation. I think there's some credence to that. Yeah. There's a line that um, Berman cites, I can't remember the author, but they talk about the schizophrenic as the failed magician. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's something really poignant about that when I consider it. Um, I mentioned Deleuze and Guattari earlier, and they talk about the schizophrenic as the one who tries to hit the wall of society, but is blunted by it. Mm -hmm. And they, they just don't make it through to the other side. They talk about, for instance, this model of the, the schizo, different from the, the schizophrenic, different from schizoid, but that's the one who's made it through, who's kind of deterritorialized their being. Um, I think there's something very exciting about that. I think it maybe is related to enchantment in a way, but I would imagine Dave maybe has some different thoughts. Do you have any thoughts, Dave, on the relationship between what we've been talking about and disenchantment and reenchantment? Not really schizophrenia, seeing as I'm not a clinician, but there's definitely mm, the order of shock. Seeing what I call reenchantment could make someone have different types of breakdown for sure. It's big, much bigger than people want to look at and i think that like it's the, the quote like the the kind of magician and the madman swim in the same water but one drowns and one doesn't type of thing is apt but i don't want to talk about psychological implications because i'm not a psychologist um sorry think about it like if you see the world turned completely upside down it would be a big shock. Yeah. There's a, one of the passages in uh, Jordan Peterson's book, Maps of Meaning, that really stuck with me and I think about a lot is the passage on um, the shamanic journey and how it relates to, it's, uh, I think the, the chapter is something like the species of anomaly. And it talks about how there's the strange event, the stranger, um, and the revolutionary hero. And they all, um, in some sense, they all destabilize. And so they all are reacted to by society at large, um, at first as just like predator detection, right? There's just an alarm that says, okay, you know, something has happened and it might mean catastrophe. Someone has arrived and maybe they bring disease or maybe they destabilize the 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 networks of society right destabilize relationships destabilize 
uh, moors, right? And then someone within society sees the world differently. And that is potentially threatening to the way the world currently is. So the revolutionary hero is always sort of, um, when, it, when, when the heroism is effective, in some sense, they're prophetic. They recognize that there's a problem that the current system can't, can't solve. So in order to solve the system, you have to be able to step outside of it and you have to be able to reconceptualize it and then come back. And so you can look at any number of uh, genius figures in history and see that they had a period of basically psychosis and that this is ritualized in many tribal cultures as the shamanic journey, right? That you, you intentionally sort of strip out the structure <laughs> such that you can have a novel solution to the problem that's generated, right? This is kind of like a, you know, a frame problem solution uh, in that Verveki nine dot kind of perspective, but that this is uh, that this is not the, the problem with it isn't just that you have to do that, but that it's inherently also threatening to the current structures of society. And that tension between um, the necessity of some kind of change and the destabilization associated with the agents of that change is going to be personally very stressful to anyone who's in the position of recognizing and seeing that something needs to change. That's certainly something that I feel like you see a lot of that in the communities that I grew up in, right? Like people were sensitive to something about the mainstream of America in the 1960s that just was untenable. And so they stepped outside of it. Um, but how they integrated and came back was often pretty broken. So it's easy for me to see how there's a, yeah, you know, the madman and the magician swim in the same waters, right? Or the, the prophet and the madman. But I think it's a really powerful, powerful thing. And I think it, it does seem to map to the type of transformations that I see you trying to think about and, and affect in your work, Dave. Like, yeah, how do you recognize the species that you're aimed at? In in my language, I think in some ways, if you look at the 1960s America, mm -hmm. and in general, almost it's like an attempt to heal a society that doesn't have the figure of the shaman really. Mm -hmm has other things for sure and they're beneficial and lots of things but it doesn't really have that and any attempt to do that without tradition or knowledge about how to do that can go catastrophically wrong <laughs> that, that i mean yes sorry <laughs> i just like uh, uh but the insight can be the insight can still be sincere and I would say that not every spiritual person I've met fits your description, Rafe, but a lot do, so for sure. But then yeah. I have met some exceptional people and they are actually the outliers that I model. Mm -hmm. And I still like, like I, I love the idea of the, the roughhousing and the gymnasium and all of that stuff because that's where I came out of and I still train like that. And 
I'll keep training like that because I think it has very positive effects if you do want to kind of look into the structure of reality slightly differently. If you hang out with kind of normal people as well and really quite strongly work the physical body as well as if you're doing lighter stuff. I like all of them. I like quite strong training still. Very fun. And I like quite introspective training. It's also very fun. And both are useful in doing a third type of thing. And yeah, I they're all kind of in what I do. And I want to keep them there and have them talk to each other. I think that that last part in particular really sticks with me in terms of how do we get these different practices talking with each other? I think if there's there's anything that the, the Batesonian epistemology suggests, it's like that question about the relatedness of these things and what can be learned from the similarities between them, the differences, the, the manner of practice. That, I think, is such a rich thing to explore. Um, I'd be curious, Dave, and maybe it's not something that can be condensed, but in terms of maintaining the the introspective practice, maintaining I call it a vigorous physical practice. How do you start to explore then the way that they talk to each other? Um, well, I tend to, with my introspective practice, just set it up and practice, and I don't tend to talk about it with anyone. And my strength training, I and martial arts practice, I keep. So I do them not every day. But sometimes, and I like them as a communal effort. I like doing them with other people. It's like very, very cool stuff. And there's other uh, body uh, awareness practices and a few other different types of things I mix there. And I've got a certain scheduling that works with them. But for me, but again, it kind of always comes back to what I'm talking about is when, for me, when you start dissolving the aspects of the disenchantment affecting the organism, all types of triangulation naturally happen. But you have to kind of have a decent physical awareness and a decent X type of skills related to spiritual traditions and a decent X things related to body work and stretching. And so if you actually get those, and these are qualities you develop over years, and then they exist in the physical alembic itself, you don't really have to like. In fact, it's, it doesn't make sense to think about protocols or procedures or that type of stuff. They just start talking. And then if you interface that with you relating to others in certain circumstances, both physical training and real life and the world, they start to communicate back and forth and you can decipher things out. So I can meet people who have different skill sets than me and I can tell they've got something happening in their body, but I don't know what it is. Or I can meet people who have the same and we go, ha, it's this one. Let's get some training. And it's just a it's a fantastic thing out there. There is still this element of mystery. I meet interesting people who have all different types of realms, abilities communicating. And for me, that's the coolest stuff there is. How does this stuff work together? Of course, there's different traditions still kind of extant in the world that do it. Um, in systemic ways in their own paradigms and they can be very auspicious for people to do and there's all other types of things some more intuitive some more systemic but <clears throat> the the triangulation 
it really does need a very solid. So I have a particular triangulation in my work, which is you need a very strong physical practice, both of harder stuff and all this, the whole spectrum through to lighter stuff. And then you need a praxis of more meditational and contemplative stuff that is working. And then you need a re-enchantment provocation. You need to actually start working on that particular structure within the organism. And if you do that, you will get results that are different. And then when they pop up, if they pop up in the person, I can talk to that person about them. And that's the essence of teaching, right? Once the abilities come there, it's like teaching any type of just physical skill. Once the person gets these things, you can talk to them about it. But if they can't feel anything in their body, you have to use kind of different cueing, different this, until it evokes within them an actual experience of that, that then they can stabilize. So you get a flicker of it and a flicker again. I think it was there. I think it was there. And then it starts to hang and then they can train it. And then it over time, and these things quite often take time, the body has this ability now as a default. And it's like that, but it happens on multiple levels simultaneously. Um, Dave, do you think that Morris Berman had achieved re-enchantment in his own life and himself as he wrote that book? Not going to answer that question. Specifically, I asked that because the of the last chapter of the book, mm-hmm. um, which I found quite disappointing after <laughs> the rest of the book. Because it it's sort of just read as he was essentially doing a rear guard action against the potential conservative interpretation of Bateson's work. And stating more or less from bald assertion that somehow the solution to all of this would end up looking like a fairly generic left-wing version of utopia that someone from the 1950, uh, 1970s would have recognized, right? So, you know, capitalism will be over, you know, sexual mores will be loosened, everybody will be happy, we'll have lots of community gardens, will stop being bad for the environment. And um, that just seemed hope, hopelessly naive to me. And I was like, I don't know. This doesn't seem to even be connected to this. And, and I see that all. I've been struggling with some of those questions a lot recently. Of like, okay, we're, we're proposing that the big systematic solutions in some sense have to be uh, – they, they can't be solved without – the the cultivation of virtue at the individual and community level but how does that actually scale up there's a it's a real question for me around community right how do we do community again or how do we do community well within the constraints of the world that we live in because there was lots of intentional communities there was lots of fallen i mean organically developed weird just the community happened. I mean, like where I grew up, you know, we always kind of joked that it was hippie county, but it wasn't really because my dad just owned land and built houses on it and rented them. And the people who wanted to rent them were hippies. And then they <laughs> did hippie things together on the land, right? <laughs> Which was wonderful and terrible. 
right? <laughs> but it left me like very, very skeptical of any sort of community pro- uh, process. I can so now, see that. Like, now I'm, in, you know, I'm in a space where all the like Bay Area rationalists who take an interest in my work and all these people are like, we're just going to, you know, buy uh, a plot of land in Tennessee and create an intentional community. And we're all going to farm and we're all going to be polyamorous and it's going to be great. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> It's going to fail. It's going to turn into, uh, it's going to turn into, uh, FTX. Right. Um, but I just went to visit a couple of friends this weekend and I was talking to them about what's going on in their life and they have young kids. And my sense is that like people are really, really struggling for community. It's what they really deeply need. And like, I see it. So my kids now are, um, 10 and eight and five. and we're kind of moving past the first difficult phase of childhood and potentially into the second difficult phase of childhood. (laughs) But, but like the real need for like someone to just hold your baby so that you can take a nap um, Mm -hmm. is over. And, and my wife is so motivated to help other young mothers. She's just like, when I had young kids and you're an entrepreneur and I'm working full time. Nobody, there had one person, she had one person who she could rely on to help out with her kids. Right. And, and so she's like, give me, I will, t- I will help with you with, with your babies. Right. <laughs> like that's like, she, you know, she wants to be the aloe parent for all these kids. She likes kids, but it's more like she deeply empathizes with mothers. <laughs> Mm-hmm. that's the thing that drives her and um we recently moved into a little cul-de-sac next to a park and for the first time in our life like there are just kids outside on the street playing so you know i i have uh you know obviously i want my kids to be outside playing as much as possible and i grew up at the end of a dirt road with other kids and very few material possessions because we were poor, which meant that there was nothing keeping me inside. It wasn't even warm inside. <laughs> so I might as well go outside and play in the woods with the other kids in the neighborhood. Right. And so when I, as my own kids have developed, it's like, okay, they can do parkour and they're strong and they do martial arts and they're capable, but like they will just stay inside all day. And I have to like actively push them outside. So now we move into this cul-de-sac and uh, for my younger two kids, there are now friends who are available outside. And so they get home from school and they just want to go outside and play and they will play until they have to come in. And it has everything to do with the proximity to other children and the fact that we live in a place where it's safe enough for them to be on the street. But at the same time, like we don't know the other parents that well. And it's like scary to want to know the other parents because maybe you disagree with them about politics, right? Like we'll understand all the weird perspectives that I have, right? Um, and then we have these, these friends who we've known forever and who have great relationships. And it's like, 
we should, you know, everyone jokes, we should all move together onto some farm. And I'm like, man, that sounds like a problem. <laughs> but how do you do that? Mm. And so there's this, it feels like there's this naive utopianism that it, you know, somehow we still, like the polyamory thing to me is like, it's still trying to do the 1960s thing. It's like, we can all just, you know, let go of, of, of sexual jealousy and then it'll bind the community together and then everybody will get along really well. It's like, that's definitely not what I've seen in life at all. And all that I think also connects to like, how do we re reconnect to the land? Well, because I think fundamentally people need a better connection to that aspects of the self, to the aspects of self and the relationship to the natural world and to the community. And somehow the current capitalist system or the disenchanted world, whatever it is, has made it really hard for us to get those connections well attuned. But I think a lot of times people think the past was like great. <laughs> it was like, oh, we're just going to go back to the medieval village. I'm like, oh, like, it's not what you think it was. <laughs> right? Like, you need community, but at the same time, communities can be so punishing to people so i don't know i'm kind of i guess i'm just throwing my thoughts at you guys and seeing what you pick up it's not exactly a question but for me that was like really where the book fell down i i don't think that the answer is the liberal utopia or the progressive utopia and i don't think the answer is the medieval village right or the 1950s housewife whatever whatever golden era of the past your particular brand of conservatism wants to or reactionariness wants to idealize it's like there is a there's a necessity to transcend and include to kind of come to some solutions right now and it feels like a lot of people have pointed out the problems but very few people have thought deeply about the solutions <laughs> um so that's where my head is at about this stuff. It's like, okay, great. But how does it actualize into a community that's actually reconnected with the land, actually reconnected with practices, and actually connected well with each other that avoids some of the, that avoids the guru thing, that avoids the, the, the intense over-policing of community and that avoids the, the trap of like, Bad sexual ethics, because that I've seen mess up communities like more than anything else, just because where I came from. And and I and a lot of these prophets of 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 reenchantment, they don't seem to recognize how big of a trap that is, how fast that can wreck everything they're trying to advocate for. So I apologize for not being able to formulate that into a question, but I'm curious for your reflections on the giant rant that I just went on. I think it's an interesting life practice. I don't know, to try and figure out how to bridge from a kind of capitalist economic value system into something like an ethico-aesthetic paradigm. I think Berman does a a decent job making a case for ethico-aesthetics as a, a possible organizing but I think you're right that it's not it's not like he gives a clear-cut plan aside from the liberal utopia. 
Um, maybe that just circles us back to the question of what the hell is the good and then what's the beautiful and then how do we organize in accordance with that? But I, 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 I find myself thinking at least one of the organizing ideas has to be a kind of ecological attitude that is, if the environment dies, we die. It's like all other hierarchies aside, we know that that one's pretty reliable. Organism without environment doesn't last. So I think a kind of uh, that skews a little too easily into like a green politics, but like ugh, there's got to be some awareness of finite resources. Yeah, I, I find that one so hard because it, like a lot of people in this space are really devoted to what I think of as a kind of environmental alarmism that I think is exactly harmful for people and often anti-human. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, this is a whole nother topic and I and I don't feel super confident, in it, but I would just say that I'm relatively skeptical that climate change is an ex- existential threat to humanity. I think it's happening and I think that uh, that human beings play a role in it but i don't think it's an existential threat to humanity and there's part of me that thinks it's a bit of a shell game because i think that species loss is a huge huge problem that somehow we're not actually paying that much attention to i think ecosystem loss is a huge problem that somehow we're not paying that much attention to i think environmental pollutants destroying our biology and the biology of all these systems is a huge problem that we're not paying that much attention to and and i think a lot of that comes down to actually getting people to be involved stewards of the land because they have real experience of it. And there's this weird way in which the climate perspective on the environment somehow plays out as we all have to live in hives and cities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this is obviously like a topic that could be, an entire podcast and I'll probably get lots of people pissed off at me because of what I've said, but, um, but it's one of these places where I think that like that binary of politics that we talked about is deeply misleading. We have to believe this thing because it's what the right thinking people believe. And then, and then, then the people who push back on it just end up, blind to a set of problems that are that are really bad you know it's like um i I don't i don't know i sorry i had to say that because it's just like i mean there's a raft of plastic the size of texas floating in the ocean yeah but i own a chunk of it so i'm just gonna set up shop there (laughs) that's good good. (laughs) um okay i don't know uh keep going sorry Green politics. Keep going with what? Yeah, I think with so much of it, it's like, well, we don't know the second order consequences of some of these things. And so to make policy decisions and certainly decisions at a local level, they're somehow supposed to address global problems like that's just doomed to fail. But I think what you mentioned is so spot on, like at a community level, at least if people can develop a, a real connection to the places they dwell and cultivate a kind of stewardship, not out of like guilt and moral obligation, but out of a sense of like, we've got this little creek that comes down behind the cabin and I like going and sitting by the creek. And if there's shit that floats down there, like that impinges upon my enjoyment. And so I'm going to clean up that stuff. Not because, you know, 
whomever is shaking their finger at me, but because I like a beautiful place. I think fundamentally we need people to fall in love with the world, with the natural world. Mm -hmm. I think that someone who truly loves the land isn't going to just leave their trash all over. And that's why I think like the practices that we, we offer are so profound. Um, and that if you, and that I do think that, I think we need bottom up and top down solutions, but that it's very easy to sort of like reach for these top down solutions and without a good sense of what's happening at the bottom up level, you just end up with something that's very tyrannical and that often has negative consequences that you didn't anticipate. Um, so I do think that like a lot of times the thing that's going to scale up, is just like, it happens in your neighborhood, right? <laughs> it happens in relationship to your local farmers, mm -hmm. you know, like I was thinking about this, I was walking through, seeing about how towns have characters when I was walking through Bellingham here and I really love Bellingham and, uh, it's a great town in a lot of ways and also has its like tyrannies right like the 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 policies around the wetlands here are really 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 strict and i know a number of people who just had the most absurd things happen to them because of these policies around wetlands but then i was walking through the city and just randomly like not aware that i was going to do it i came across a pond uh, like a pretty big pond with lilies and fallen snags and lots and lots of bird life on and i was like that pond exists because this is the type of town where people can become terroristic about protecting the stormwater thing right it's like there's there's some like obviously there's a better balance of that but like the character of the town is set in some sense because people do care right i was walking this morning through uh welcome falls park and there were two deer wading through the, the water. And I got to just watch the deer. There are deer everywhere in Bellingham. Um, and it's like there's a... There is something that's different about this town compared to some other town because there is a green ethic that has been important to many of the people who lived here for a really long time. Dave, did you have any any responses to my rant? Yes, you touched on a lot of like interesting and quite a lot of correct and unsightly aspects of many things, individual, community, and ecological. Yeah, I think the title you made it was "Reenchanting the Earth," and the whole like the connection there is. I don't have to tell you guys about it, but I love going out into the forest. I like the city I'm in. Canberra has a lot of wilderness just inside the city and floating trash things and all that. It's just, I don't know. I don't mm, try not to politicize it, but I feel very strongly about protecting the planet and its ecosystems for our enjoyment and continued existence. Um, and fun. It's fun going out in the bush. Um, there's in terms of the group aspect. Um, I don't know. 
it's interesting. Surely we've formed auspicious groups in the past where we can actually communicate and get along, but we have trouble doing that for certain periods of time at the moment. Um, my focus, I guess, is largely individual and with individuals and trying to have some different new form of group arise, which I do believe is possible. I'm quite optimistic about that, but in a kind of like enchanted realist way in terms of I agree with a lot of the negative things that you mentioned, and they are real problems that do exist in the real world. And they are complicated. So, yeah, like this year I've been fighting my reasonably savage hermiting tendencies and going out more into different communities, which has been nice. So I'll just keep doing that, I guess. Um, in terms of the the last bit of the book, again, I won't say too much, but re-enchantment itself is a parallax. So what people say about re-enchantment is itself showing the things that I'm doing. Same with alchemy, same with some of the figures related to this, Reich and Jung and all those, what people do with their work is itself indicative of what I am doing in a very, I think, intriguing way, which I hope to present sometime in this lifetime, hopefully this year, so that we can talk about it whilst it's allowed. Um, but yeah, I'm quite hopeful about there's a possibility of, I don't know, like some sort of neo-guild structure where people have their particular crafts and they teach people and have apprentices, let's say, and then they have other people that they do work on. And then let's say journeymen and masters get together and have a meeting and can actually have a reasonably civil discussion and probably do some sort of practice around it as well. I think that's possible. And what can come out of that, who knows, but could be very interesting. That I find very exciting. Yeah, I've been... I've been uh, involved in a, a project called the Respond Project, which is organized around John Verbeke's work, and it's about essentially trying to create a network of wisdom practitioners. And the the idea of the guild structure uh, has been a major, you know, major touch point of thinking as well. So it's kind of interesting to see you bring that up. Um, I need to dig back into my history. Uh, the, the rise of capitalism and its conflict with the guilds. I'm not sure. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not sure that guilds are the best structure, but I think there ha there there is a necessity for a communal aspect to the cultivation of practices. You know, one thing I've heard people say a lot is there is no parkour community there is no x community there is no this community uh, and i think that really comes from this sort of atomized cartesian thing it's like really there's nothing above the level of the individual agent right and so you know it's, it's almost it's weirdly almost objectivism right it's like Anne randian but like obviously there are communities right we are <laughs> we are constantly networked into sort of um, cultures that are passing information back and forth that we are impacted by. Like we think that, like you're not, you're not what you think isn't 
isn't yours, right? Uh, like it's your individual genius interacting with some innumerable number of influences and all of that is moving through these communities. You can even think of it as a, a spirit, right? Like we're, we're in, when you become a parkour teacher, you're entering into relationship with the spirit of parkour, which is moving in its own directions and doing its own things and um, kind of maybe chaotic relative to you in a way. Um, but it's out there. Like it's It's not like, you know, like I discovered this, like I could have my own definition of parkour and I could do this, but like my students came in with their ideas based on what they saw on YouTube. <laughs> so it was like the community, there were things happening in the community. They were always impacting me and my students. Um, so it, it does seem like in some sense, the capitalist paradigm or the corporate paradigm, it doesn't give us a good way to uh to seek virtue in the community aspect you can't if you don't have a really good way of describing what a community is or what a collective intelligence is then you can't ask how we can do it better hmm. what are the dynamics that make it work so i think in some sense that that idea of the neo guild and, and I, I certainly think like we need a real apprenticeship model, right? Like mm -hmm. the fact that um, people run certifications for two days <laughs> <laughs> is the most absurd thing, right? It's the most obviously capitalistically just illusory, right? Like mm -hmm. I will, I will give you a piece of paper. <laughs> Like everything about it is, it's just bullshit, right? It's just hundred percent bullshit, right? Like you can learn how to be a coach in a weekend. Bullshit. I'll give you this paper, which will make you more officially a coach than you would have been in bullshit. That piece of paper will actually help you sell yourself on the market. Mostly bullshit. And yet it's, it's giant, right? Like every marketing consultant that I talk to virtually is like, you're being an idiot for not offering that mm -hmm. sorry and of course my camera died well we've had yeah. long <clears throat> conversations about how idiotic most it's time to go but um <laughs> my face is still, face is still yeah there we go i'm happy with that everything's bullshit <laughs> we have to re-enchant ourselves so we can escape the bullshit any final words i'm good we can talk again next time. Yeah. I'm satisfied. Yeah. I, I think there's more to cover, but a good first go of it. Um, for folks who are interested in Dave's work, physicalalchemy.com, physical alchemy on Facebook. Those are the places. Yeah. Instagram and, as well now, kind of. Oh, Instagram. That's new. Mm, You're yeah. catching up. In 10 years, you'll be on TikTok. Um <laughs> Uh, Chandler Ecosomatics is that that's coming back now? Uh, ChandlerStevens.com is the best hub for the time being. Doing a couple of updates on the various websites, a couple too many projects to juggle, but ChandlerStevens.com is a fine place. I'll find you. Okay. Thank you guys, and uh, it was a pleasure.